Hi everyone, it's Bud, and welcome to the latest episode of Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. They have been called the greatest cabaret artist of their generation by The New Yorker. Legions of fans of Justin Vivian Bond won't disagree. They've been an icon of the downtown cabaret and art scene for more than 30 years, best known for the character they created in their 20s in the Bay Area at the height of the AIDS epidemic. The boozy, sarcastic, fearless, aging lounge singer Kiki Durain with Kenny Melman, the popular fictional musical duo Kiki and Herb. How popular? They sold out Carnegie Hall twice. Now known as Vivian, they are also a transgender trailblazer. I spoke to them during the same week that a trans teenager was beaten up in a high school bathroom in Oklahoma and died two days later, though as of our interview, the official cause of death was unclear. Viv has taught a lot of us about life for trans people, including me. When I first interviewed you in 2009, you were really the first person who educated me, either intentionally or unintentionally, about the whole notion of gender fluidity. And the best day on the job as a journalist is when you learn something. (laughs) So that was one of the great days on the job. I guess 15 years later, my question is, do you still find that you have to be, again, either intentionally or not, educating people? Or is there the notion of, look, the life of trans people you either understand it or you don't. Well, unfortunately, people still really need to be educated. I'm a little tired of educating people, right. um, but I do it when I have to. I, I feel like my life is uh, most powerful with other people if they can just see me, how I go about my business and how I go about my life. And they can be a witness to that as opposed to me like really lecturing or, you know, anything along those lines. But also there are um, younger people who are so enthusiastic and so energetic and so actually so much more, um, I guess you could say articulate than I am about how things are looked at today. So I learn from them and they teach other people, and they're actually more confrontational than I am because at this point I'm not particularly interested in being confrontational. I'm just there. People just have to, can look if they like. <laughs> is, is there a moment through the years when all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait a minute, now people are coming to me. Young trans kids are coming to me for support, for advice, uh, and I've become the person handing down the advice as opposed to the young kid growing up looking for someone like that? I think it's actually more the parents that um, come to me asking me for advice. And a lot of times they don't want the advice. They come to you for advice to tell you how they feel and you want, and they want you to validate the way they feel um, so that they can say, well, listen, I talked to this person and blah, blah, blah. Um, and my advice always to trans parents is do whatever your kid tells you to do because they know what they're going through right. and they know best. You don't know what it's like to be trans. Your child does. You're there to support them, not to figure out how to fix them. 
you know, we've seen uh, tragically just even this week a story out of Oklahoma about a kid in high school beaten up in the high school bathroom, uh, died a few days later. At this point, it's still not clear whether it's because of the fight or something else that happened, but it, the fight certainly did not help. Is there a way you can gauge from what you hear, people you talk to about what it's like to grow up as a trans kid right now versus growing up when you did in a small town in Maryland? Well, you know, I, I've been thinking about that and I think it's one of the blessings and curses of trans visibility um, that young people see trans people living happy lives mm -hmm. and they feel like they're trans and they should be able to lead a happy life and be themselves. And they live in snake pits, you know, and therefore they don't, I don't think they're young, they're innocent. I don't think they know how much danger there actually is. And I also think that um, the people that are legislating and advocating to quote unquote protect trans children are actually, in most cases, the people that children have to be protected from. Mm -hmm. um, as witnessed in Oklahoma, this child was not protected by the, uh, the state, which is, you know, making a big fuss about protecting trans children. You know, this is all supposed to be for their own good. And unfortunately, it's just tragic that people who want to make a name for themselves in politics or people who want to get a leadership position in some sort of religious organization or people that want to raise funds for their right-wing extremist group have targeted children to prey upon to advance their goals. It's insidious and it's sickening. Um, and it just shows you what these people are really like. You told me many years ago that your career, your work was an exploration of femininity in men, uh, which, <laughs> which I found fascinating. And I'm curious uh -huh. now about, you know, a decade and a half later, does that still pertain or was that for that time? Well, I mean, I still enjoy um, feminine men. I like femininity. I like expressing myself through it. And I enjoy other people who express themselves through it. You're also now of the age that when you first created the character Kiki Durain, you created her to be pretty much around the age that you are right now. She's, well, uh, or not uh, to maybe, be fair, uh, she maybe was, in the uh, ballpark. 66. Oh, okay, she so sixty-six. So, so you I'm got, not quite there yet. You got years to go before that. Yeah, uh, there's a big difference. As you know, my mom was eighty-seven, and her sister was ninety-one, and her sister didn't drive anymore. And she said to my mom, well, I can't believe you drive. Well, Joyce, you're 91. I'm only <laughs> 87. So I can still drive for now. That's it. And so I guess those years as you get older become very precious. From what I understand, when you do you do the character from time to time these days or have over the last couple of years? Yes, we reunited in 2016 for a long run at Joe's Pub. And then we uh, did another show right after the pandemic. We reopened um, the, um, uh, the a theater at BAM, 
the um, can't think of the name of the theater right now. But we reopened BAM, right. and then we did Christmas tours for the last two years. Last year we played the Beacon. This year we played Town Hall for two nights. So it's been fun because it's limited. Well, the character is a sensational character, beloved. You learn anything else about the character playing it at this <laughs> age as opposed to 30, 40 years ago? Well, I think I have a little bit more um, of an understanding of the nuances of the character. But the thing that makes it worth doing for me, because I like doing my own thing, I like playing with my band. I This is, you know, a lot of it is history. A lot of the fans know the story. So, you know, it's it's all contained within a fixed framework. So... The part that makes it worth it for me is I'm just constantly amazed by how much people enjoy it. So I personally don't enjoy doing it too much and creatively it's very fun and I know I'm good at it and I enjoy working with Kenny, but it's exhausting, first Mm -hmm. of all. Um, And second of all, I don't really like touring, um, but the response from audiences is so beautiful that I feel wonderful because it makes people so happy. That's a weird thing to say. And I don't mean to sound, you know, I don't want that to sound like it's coming from my ego because it, it honestly isn't. It's just that, it's just that people enjoy it so much. It makes me happy. (laughs) When you were growing up in this small town in in Maryland in the 60s and the 70s, is there even a small scintilla of uh, people who were understanding what you were going through as a kid, as a trans kid, or was it just absolutely no one who got it? Well, I was thinking about this because of the Dev Benedict thing, and I guess Part of, and I know this might sound ridiculous, but part of what really upset me about the story is that the people attacking him were older girls. And when I was growing up, you know, my girlfriends had my back. They were the people that I felt like I could run to for protection. And I was remembering specifically one time when I was either in seventh or eighth grade and no, I was in seventh grade. And um, these boys in gym class decided they were going to give me a wedgie. And I'm a Taurus. I was like, you are not going to give me a wedgie. And, you know, so there were a bunch of guys on me all at once trying to, you know, rip my underpants up. And um, then this one kid called me the F word. And I just hauled off and whacked him. And I didn't know how to fight. So I don't know if I had a opened my palm or if I had a fist, but one of my fingers went right into his eye and he squealed like a pig. And he was, you know, the next day and he ran and they let me go. And I ran out of the um, locker room and stood by the girls locker room crying. I think I heard him. But they were like, oh, you poor thing. You know, like they, they tried to make me feel better. And I, I only got a wedgie, but all those boys could have done a lot of damage to me. And they were doing it to me because I was, you know, a queer 
And they, he called me that because he thought that. And so, you know, you think about there but for the grace of God go I, and that's intergenerational. Right. It's not like, I mean, this thing is triggering memories and things to come back of experiences that people have fortunately lived through. But it also reminds us of a lot of people, you know, immediately you think of Matthew Shepard, of people who did not live through it. And it also makes you, and I'm sure it makes young children think, that these people actually literally want you dead. They don't want any part of you. They don't want to see you. They don't want you to exist. So by erasing somebody's right to exist or their identity, you are basically destroying them and getting rid of them. So it's a it's a life or death situation, and I'm not saying that in any kind of hyperbolic way. It's been proven far too many times. Yes. Uh, do you remember the name of the guidance counselor? You once told me there was a guidance counselor who said to you, like, look, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, because uh -huh. last time I checked, I wasn't there. Uh, <laughs> just try and make it through high school. If you get to college, there are a greater variety of people in college. And paraphrasing, is that essentially yes. the message to you? That was a, psycho a psychologist because okay. my guidance counselor had recommended to my family that I get counseling because I was, you know, becoming a problem in school because I was so angry because of the way I was being treated all the time. And so um, it was a psychologist, actually, who was, as it turned out uh, later, she was the half-sister of a boy that I had um, a little, you know, high school relationship with. But that was before I, um, before that happened. But yes, I feel like her telling me that, if I could just keep my head down and get through high school, then I would be able to go wherever I wanted and I would find my community. And this is what I mean by it's just such a, um, you know, double-edged double blade. The um, children seeing what could be and expecting to be able to live that freely when they're not actually safe. You know, if I, I, I don't know what it would be like for... Um, a kid in the place where I grew up still, you know? I know that they have pride pride events in my hometown now, but I, you know, even back when I was doing Broadway, they had me on the cover of the arts section of the paper, and then on the, the metropolitan section or whatever, they had a, a, a story about how the mayor had refused to allow uh, the... Maryland State drag pageant to happen in their town. They wouldn't, they wouldn't permit it. So, you know, it's, it's, those people are still there. Mm -hmm. uh, so you go to Adelphi University on Long Island and you start <laughs> making trips into New York. First of all, had, I, I presume, had you been to New York before? And second of all, when you start making these trips into New York, is there a notion that you're just going to get off the bus or on the train and it's, it's going to be a completely different world and everything is going to be wonderful or were you a little more skeptical about it than that well to be honest it was more it was a completely different world and i was very fortunate because uh i had been to new york with my dad we went to see a couple broadway shows and we went out to adelphi and we looked at some other colleges in the area but when i moved to adelphi my um, best girlfriend victoria leacock 
she lived in the city. And so on weekends, I would come into the city with her and her guardians that she lived with because her mother passed away. She had a gay um, sibling that was their kid, but they were basically brother and sister, and who was our age, who grew up in New York and was just very fine with it. And they lived in a brownstone on 24th Street. So I thought that's what New York was like. Everybody <laughs> lived in a <laughs> everybody lived in a brownstone and had a beautiful little terrace out in their backyard. And then she would um, uh, she promoted parties at Studio Fifty Four. So I would go into the city and hang out in the brownstone and go to Studio Fifty Four on the weekend. So that's what I thought New York was like. <laughs> So it was you know who good. who who didn't do that in college? Just go I to their know. you know beautiful. I was shocked because a lot of the people in my theater program were invited, and they were like, "Oh no, we're not going into the city." And I was in the city every week, and I thought, you know what? You're not going into the city now, and I have a feeling you're not going anyplace else. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> they didn't want to do anything, and I was out there doing everything I could possibly do. But on the other hand. I, because she was straight, and even though Studio 54 was gay, it was a different, There was a, it was a mixed crowd. I never got in with a gay crowd, so, or a performance art crowd, so I didn't really know what was happening in the village or in the East Village in the performance art scene that I eventually became a part of. I knew nothing of it when I lived here the first time. Huh. Oh, you, what 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 do you need to know? You have a place to stay, and you're going to Studio Fifty Four. Yeah, it's like, and I could see, you know, people were performing there. I saw the Village people there. I saw, you know, I can't remember Pia Zadora. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I saw a lot of great acts there, so it was it was, and it was free, you know. So I loved it. Anyone who has seen you perform would think this is a ridiculous question, and it's not the first time I've asked a, a ridiculous question, but. <laughs> You know, you seem like you were born to perform because you're such a wonderful performer. But at any time, either at school or maybe even after, was there a plan B? Was there a notion of, oh, you know, maybe I'll be a molecular biologist or something like that? I did have a plan B, but it wasn't uh, until I was in my 20s because I graduated from Adelphi. And while I was there, I studied at the in the summer at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, I went over and studied Shakespeare. Um, and I felt, you know, I was pretty good at what I did, but I didn't know 100%. So I went to D.C. and I thought, well, I'm not going to go back to New York until I have an equity card right. because it was really difficult to get one here. And, so, and also to be in some shows and actually know that I do have talent. I know I have training. I know I have skills. Do I have talent? And I did uh, several plays in D.C., and I realized that I did have talent. But I also realized that as I would go out to these auditions, I was spending all this time trying to figure out who they wanted me to be, how they wanted to see me, how I could present myself in a way that was as far as away from myself as I could be so that they would hire me. And I just didn't like doing that. I was trying to find out who I was, not be somebody I wasn't. So I decided that I was going to move to San Francisco and I was going to um, establish residency in the state of California and try to go to a University of California 
um, campus and become a, um, an art history major and maybe be a professor or something. And then I got to San Francisco and I found, you know, the performance and queer community that saved me and gave me my life path. And is that an, almost an immediate uh, response when you get there? Like, oh, this is what I'm supposed <laughs> to do. And is there confidence that you can do it or is there the element of doubt? Well, I was young, so I believed I could do anything. Um, and it, I moved there in 88 and by... 89, I was in my first show at um, the Theater Rhinoceros, which was a LGBT theater in San Francisco. And I was a, one of the leads. I was the romantic interest, um, which I had never even considered being when I was doing straight plays in college and nobody had ever considered casting me as. So it was fun to be the romantic interest of the lead character. Um, so yeah, it took me about a year, and then once, and then Kate Bornstein hired me to be in Hidden Agenda, which was uh, a play about trans people. Her, mm -hmm. She, her journey as a trans woman, and I play the nineteenth-century um, French intersex person named Hercule Barbin, whose journals journals were discovered by um, Michel Foucault, and so that brought me into empowering my identity as a trans person, and and that that really changed my life. You've talked many times and eloquently about how you kind of channeled your rage about what was going on with the AIDS crisis into performing. How does that come about? It was so organic for me. First of all, when I was at Adelphi, I wasn't very, I wasn't casting plays very often, but we had cabaret shows at Adelphi and I was casting those quite often. And um, one of the people who I worked with quite often was Jonathan Larson. Mm -hmm. And um, we were, all, it was the Reagan years the, and the early 80s. And we were all really, you know, pissed off about Reagan. He'd cut all the education funds right when we got to college. So everything was being chopped and cut and taken away. So, and then there was the moral majority and, and so we did cabaret shows that were very political about all of those things. So that was how I cut my teeth. So when I got to San Francisco and I started, I did my first cabaret show, which was very successful and got a lot of attention with Kenny. We weren't Kiki and Herb yet, um, but Kenny was doing art activism. I was doing art activism. We were both marching. So when I created this character of Kiki, I based it on my friend's mother, who was also political and an amazing woman who uh, was a showgirl in Baltimore in the 50s. And then when she was in her 50s, she went back to college to get uh, her degree in social work. So she was very, you know, left wing and very opinionated and intimidating, but also inspiring. And so I merged what I thought were the best parts of her um, and the, also the most sort of tragic as far as the alcoholism and all of that. Right. Um, and then I, I created that character. But because I was an older character and because she was an alcoholic, I, as a 20-something-year-old person, could get away with saying so many things that would just sound stupid or strident coming from a 20-some-year-old. So I found a way to have enough distance from the character to make what I was saying potent, but also funny. 
And is that uh, organic as well? You you kind of try it out and find that, that it's working or is there a plan going in? No, I think this can work and I'm just going to go with it. I think it's just, I think it's honestly just the way I am, huh. like the way I view the world. Um, I always knew what was the right way to behave. I always knew what I thought was the honest way to behave. And I knew that there was a lot of distance between those two things. And in between those two things is where the interesting part of negotiating politics, right. art, change, being progressive, you know, or just, you know, conversely, being a very horrible person when you know what is the right thing to do and you're still not doing it. So it's 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 wishy-washy if you grow up in a uh, a place with moral certitude that absolutely is not based in anything but just strident militancy. I guess you could call it, but other people would just call it religion. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a good thing we've worked all of that out in the in the years subsequent. Uh, well, that's what's interesting, because I was uh, uh, at the memorial service of Cecilia Gentili last week at uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, uh -huh. which was, as far as we know, the first time a trans woman had a memorial service or a funeral at St. Patrick's, and it was attended by, you know, trans people, and she was an amazing activist. She worked for uh, the rights of sex workers, she worked for health care. She was an amazing person who did a lot of things in her life and saved people, helped people. And um, she was also a performer. And uh, so they told the priests everything she had done. They didn't say that she was a trans woman. They just said she was a woman and she had accomplished all these things and she was a Catholic. And they said, of course, you can have this service at the church. And um, they did. And then the next a few days afterward, the church puts out a um, statement saying that they've done a um, mass of reparation for the sacrilege that had occurred in the church that they had basically, you know, in some inferring that in some way or another, they'd been hoodwinked when the person who planned and approached them said, she's famous, you should Google her. Yeah, and yeah. the priest never even took any steps to find out who the person was that they were memorializing, which I think shows another uh, insight into what these people are really like. So uh, under the heading of 99.99% um, .99 of the rest of us will never be in this position, what is going through one's mind the night before you play Carnegie Hall for the first time? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, first of all, I... What, what year was it? Not it was 2004 the first time, and right. I went to, this is shameful, not shameful, but I wouldn't do it again, put it this way. I um, went to a bunch of parties and did a bunch of blow and went and stayed in a hotel room with a boy that I had a serious crush on and got up in the morning and had a fitting, hit myself in the eye with the door and had a shiner and um, then walked out onto the stage <laughs> at Carnegie Hall for one of the most triumphant moments of my life, 12 hours later. So I wouldn't recommend that. Yeah. The yeah. second time I played Carnegie Hall and we headlined, I think I was a bit more sensible. And was it the first time where you told me that your, your folks or the people from your hometown 
chartered a bus and they all came up from yes. what, Gaithersburg, yes. Maryland? From Hagerstown. Hagerstown, I'm sorry. Yes. Yes, that was the one. <laughs> and it was an amazing night. But you asked for what led up to the night before. And of course, in those days, that wouldn't have been an extraordinary night for me. But uh, fortunately, I don't have the same habits and desires as I did back then. And and th during the performance or leading up to the performance, is there some notion of, all right, these people who knew me when I was six are going to see me doing my thing and doing it beautifully in Carnegie Hall, or you put that out of your mind? Well, the only thing I... People asked me if I was nervous, and I wasn't nervous. Um, I might have been nervous afterward, but I wasn't nervous because I knew that this was what I always planned for, what I always believed would happen to me, and I felt, this is where I'm supposed to be, this is it, this is happening right now. I'm so excited. And I went out and I did probably one of the best shows I've ever done in my life. And um, then afterward was like, Whoa! <laughs> but leading up to it, I was just clear. And I'm even the terrible, not terrible, but even the partying that I was doing the night before, that was all just part of this like fantasia that I had created for myself. So even when I was doing things that didn't, that seemed counterproductive, I was in the zone. So there was no, uh, there was going to be no stopping me in that show. And it was really an amazing day. You told me once, one of the greatest things I've ever heard in an interview, and I've thought about this many times since, you shouldn't have to go and sell out Carnegie Hall in order for your parents to approve of what you were doing. It's true. That's pretty powerful. Well, and then, you know, that didn't change everything for the rest of my life, but it did for a little while <laughs> with my relationship with them. You know, hills and valleys, one step forward, two steps back. My mother died last year and I was with her and we had an amazing relationship. But my father died in 2016 when we were doing the Kiki and Herb run at Joe's Pub. And for the year or so up leading up to that, he wouldn't allow me in the house because I'd really... Um, you know, started taking hormones and transitioning physically, and he just wasn't having it. So I was banished for a few years, so I wasn't there when he was sick or dying. But um, then once he passed away, then I was able to see my family again, and my mother and I, I guess you would say, had a rapprochement or whatever. And we just became very, very close. And she would come up and see shows. And she had a wonderful time. I took her to the opera for the first time. And, you know, we had a great time in the last few years of her life. So that ended up being all's well that ends well. And I remember you told me <laughs> once about the pressure that she, you saw as a kid that she was under from what, relatives, other family about, you know, the yes, pressure and have the son that you're supposed to have, you know, whatever mm -hmm. supposed to means. Right. And she at a certain point, I think, gave up on that. One of my favorite lines, my sister told me that she said in the last year of her life, you know, looking back, I think our family did pretty good. I mean, my sisters and brothers, they have children that were divorced. They have children who are addicted to drugs. They have children that have been in jail. I mean, I think our family's pretty normal. I mean, your brother's your sister, but even that kind of makes sense once you think about it. <laughs> <laughs>
And so I thought that was definitely the seal of approval. That's classic. <laughs> a friend of yours told you or described you as uh, the most positive nihilist he knows. And then you, you told me, I don't believe in anything, and yet I have faith in everything. I think that's right. Has 15 years changed any of that, or is that still appropriate to say, or apt to say about you? Well, actually, I believe in everything. At this point, that's how I look at it. I believe in everything, because if you believe in it, and it's your reality, then it's true. And I'm talking about you, uh, or other people. If other people believe in something, that's their reality, and you have to deal with it. So you have to believe in it in order to deal with something, you know. And so when it comes to religion, I believe in all religions. My personal spirituality is maybe not exactly like all of those religions because some of them are so shameful and what's done in their name is so shameful. But I do believe in God and I believe in Allah and all of those other things because the world spins around those beliefs. If you can go back those many years and you're in Maryland and you're working at Dairy Queen or mm -hmm. Walden Books, mm -hmm. the notion... I prefer to work at Walden Books. <laughs> <laughs> Although like job, you did though. tell me that you would occasionally slip your sister a little something on the side, get her a little something extra. So, yeah, you know, that, that when you're a kid, that has, I think, more cachet than here's <laughs> the new uh, J.D. Salinger book, you know. Uh, True, but, but I could uh, find books there that I couldn't find in the library. Oh, interesting. So mm -hmm. that even was opening up a little bit of a world to you. Yes. Oh, that's a very interesting thing. Mm -hmm. At that point, the notion that you could one day uh, explore your art and explore yourself through your art, would it have just seemed like, oh, you know, that's a, that's a cockamamie dream or... Did you have some notion of, you know, there's a bigger world out there than this? Uh, no, I always knew. I always knew in my mind where I was going to go and what I was going to do. And it's only through being experienced in this business that I have become less quote unquote ambitious because in order to be in certain places in this business you have to deal with a kind of people and you have to compromise yourself to get places and i see what happens to people and yes they might have more money than i do or they might be more famous but i'm at a place where i i love where i am and um and i'm not going to go out and try to become a, a big star because I don't think that would make me happy. But I think I could have. I just chose not to. And when I was young, I knew I could. There was no, I never had any doubt. And are there any lessons from those years or the year, years at Adelphi or maybe the early years out in the Bay Area, lessons you learned that you think you still apply today? Well, aesthetically, I learned so much because I would go to the library and check out books on photography, books on stars, books on glamour. And, you know, I would read intellectual books when I worked at the bookstore in San Francisco. So um, intellectually and um, aesthetically, I've had a kind of constancy and in my interest in singing and in telling stories. 
I, I read that one of your favorite books is American Girl, Edie, American Girl. Right, uh, and, an American biography, I think it was called. Yeah, is and you, right? had, you had the classic line, uh, I think it was in the Times, it wasn't until years <laughs> later that I realized that emulating Edie Sedgwick and dying face down on my pillow high on drugs might not be the most glamorous way to go. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's exactly right. That's what I'm talking about. You know, these dreams as a kid, and then you think, well, if that dream came true, I don't know if I would be so happy. And so that's when I changed my dreams, but I never doubted that I could make my dreams come true. I just recalibrated a lot of them so I could survive and be happy. Viv, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, it's my pleasure. I really enjoy resuming the conversation. That's very nice. I'm so happy to chat with you again. Justin, Vivian Bond. They are part of a show at City Winery in New York on March 25th and 26th. And then they return to one of their favorite venues, Joe's Pub in New York's East Village, from May 1st through May 5th. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.